1: Welcome to a brand new edition of Freedom Books, Flowers and the Moon, the podcast brought to you each week by the Times Literary Supplement. This is the 50th edition of the TLS podcast in this form, so thanks to you all for sticking with us. My name is Stig Abel, the editor of the TLS. Thea Lenaduzzi is scandalously absent today. Regular listeners will know that Thea is almost maniacal in her desire to take holidays involving walking and cheese I imagine so she's buggered off on holiday we wish her well kind of and hope that on her return she will not peremptorily call a general election standing in for Thea and keeping the Northern account tokenistically high is our arts editor the left-leaning indie pop star Lucy Dallas. Welcome, Lucy. Hello. Is that a fair description of you, the left-leaning indie pop star?
2: (laughs) I give up. Yes. Yes, it's a very... That's exactly what I am. And no more. And no more or less. (laughs) Or
1: less. Uh, Do you have any strong views on walking or cheese? Not. Really? Would you like me to make some up? Yeah, I mean...
0: You, I'm quite
1: like. keen on both,
0: but like not as
2: much as Thea.
1: No, would you go on holiday
2: walking? Would anyone? I'd do a bit of walking. Yeah,
0: yeah. You got, I would countenance
2: got a bit of walking. You've got kids,
1: though, so there's only so far you can take a kid walking.
2: Well, actually, like they kids. can walk further than me now.
1: Do they happily do it if you said, let's go walking for...
2: Happily is overstating yeah. it, I
1: think. Yeah. yeah. Uh, I, uh, I took my kids cycling um, a couple of weeks ago, where we cycled for about five miles. And I thought, it's lovely, it's sunny... It was a beautiful place. It was flat. I thought, this is lovely.
2: When did the moaning start?
1: I'd say around <laughs> 300 yards in. And then continued for yep. the remainder of it until we assuage them with some form of chocolate, chocolate stroke ice cream at the end of it. Yeah,
2: yep, that sounds about right.
1: Yeah, you've been there. If you want to subscribe to the TLS, Google TLS subscriptions. Type pod 1 in the offer code section. You can get six issues for £6. Coming up on the podcast this week, I don't know if you've noticed... But in the UK, there's been an election on recently. Thrillingly enough, we kind of predicted the outcome on last week's podcast, where we said this could be the election that nobody wins. And nobody's won. We've been left with a hung parliament, a lame duck prime minister propped up by some extremish DUP politicians and a surging Labour Party. I've written a review of the election this week in the TLS, headlined The Audacity of Nope, and we shall be discussing all matters electoral with TLS managing editor Bob Potts, who wrote a prescient piece about Corbyn back in March. Our guru in the arts world, consultant editor Anna Vo, has been to the brilliantly titled Varnishing Day at the Royal Academy for its summer show. She speaks to artist Tom Lomax and will be reporting back for us. And it's 50 years since the summer of love, that endlessly recycled cultural cliche. How much was it a spiritual and artistic awakening? And how much was it a bunch of grubby stoners in garish clothes trying to have sex with one another? The irrepressible DJ Taylor will be on hand to give us history's inexorable judgement on 1967. So we've had the election that nobody won. Most of all, an electorate that is now condemned to an incredibly fragile Tory government propped up by the DUP, a group of Irish politicians scarcely on the mainstream radar until now, but already notorious for antediluvian views on abortion and same-sex marriage. The closest to a winner in all this is not, of course, Theresa May, who remains as our Prime Minister, but her opponent, Jeremy Corbyn. Dismissed by many, not always without grounds, as variously shambolic, extremist and unelectable, happier in his allotment or at a sit-in, he had a superb campaign. Did the audience get to see the real Jeremy, or did Jeremy also smarten up when it mattered most? Perhaps a bit of both. So what now for Britain, for Brexit, for the Tories and for Labour? I've written something for the paper this week, which seeks to review these most interesting electoral times. I should make clear that I was commissioned by Toby Lichtig, our political editor, to do it. I didn't just demand the space for myself like some sort of literary Kim Jong-un. In the piece, I say we're living in a period of transformation when old peri- political verities must be considered afresh. And a reliance on old politics will be punished. Theresa May ran the same campaign as Clinton, as Zach Goldsmith to be Mayor of London, as the Remainers in the EU referendum. Politics in the world have changed since then. Well, to talk this over, we're joined by TLS managing editor Bob Potts, who wrote a fantastic and fantastically prescient piece on Corbyn back in March. Indeed, both Lucy and Bob are two of the people with whom I have the most fun political chats on a daily basis in the TLS offices. Welcome to you, Bob.
2: Thank you. I've got a very difficult question for you, Steve, about then. this. So you predicted on the podcast last week more or less what would happen and that kind nobody of. would win. So I'd like to ask you, just how right were you?
1: Yeah, <laughs> and the reason I was slightly right, although I got swung in the way that I think a lot of us did by political journalists and indeed politicians telling us that there's going to be a vast Tory majority, was... A, talking to people like Bob, who was constantly saying to me, people see more of Corbyn the more they like him. Mm. And also I have this radio show on a Sunday where we talk about politics all the time and the number of people calling in saying, I'm switching from Tories, this campaign by May has been a catastrophe. I'm thinking of Corbyn again. And I think that was the one thing that, that changed. I think this is probably, and if you agree with this, Bob, this was what... that rare thing in an election where the campaign actually really mattered. I think up to the campaign there was a certain view that this was going to be a coronation and the campaign changed people's minds.
3: I think very much so and I think one of the reasons for that was the impartiality rules that come into play once the election was called. You did get to see him and he speaks fairly intelligently with context quite reasonably and then is contrasted quite starkly with the way he had previously been mediated for two years by his critics. And I think at that point when people see that complete dissonance between what they've been told and what they're experiencing they cease to trust the detractors and began to warm to the underdog.
1: But also he starkly contrasted I think with Theresa May. So this was a guy who was comfortable in his own skin who could handle a bit of banter and a bit of to and fro, contrasted with this woman who literally could not answer a single question. She and got
2: very rattled, didn't she? As well, soon as just as soon not as normal, she got any of
3: someone quite early on and quite cruelly but accurately said she would fail the Turing test that yeah. she uh, <laughs> couldn't actually prove that she was human. Um, the Maybots—that was the other phrase that really stuck. It, it was well, it well the, was naughty,
1: st- the, the, the What's the naughtiest thing you ever did? And she went, "Oh, uh, 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 I once uh, ran, uh, ran uh, through, a through a field of wheat." wheat. And um, it just became... At what point did the Tories think that was going to be a, a sort of palatable option? How did they not
3: know how bad a campaigner she was going to be? I know that she wasn't tested in the leadership contest because that did turn into a coronation, but she's been around for a while. Have they? Did they really have no idea that she was going to perform that badly?
2: And also, do you think it was because she wasn't entirely convinced by the manifesto either? Or, or maybe not up to speed on it because the whole... U-turns business.
1: You look at it another way. I think if she'd have just done a very straight manifesto, platitudinous in the way that she's clearly very comfortable with, but completely policy-free, I think we're looking at a greater likelihood of a Tory majority now. She ended up trying to expose her thinking. And because she had no flexibility or capacity to defend anything or to seem rational or human or be good at arguments, that manifesto being slightly tricksy completely exposed her.
2: But if it's her thinking, why can't she defend it? Th- I mean, that's why. That's why I'm saying. I wondered if had she had it kind of thrown at her at the twenty third hour. If, if that's really what she thinks, I don't understand why she couldn't defend it. I mean, she clearly couldn't.
3: It was full also some gratuitous uh, points like the fox hunting thing. Yeah, for f- whose odd. benefit was that? What possible good could that Was that for the that Daily Mail? Well,
2: no, the I don't fox think the hunting. Daily Mail particularly
1: care about. We actually talked about this on the podcast because we had Tom Holland on, and mm, we yeah. couldn't work it out. Because if you like fox hunting, you're probably going to vote Tory anyway. Yeah. yeah. And if you don't like fox hunting, you're never going to vote for a party that considers it.
3: It's not going to make you endear them to, to, to you at all, is it? And uh, then the other the attacks on your base in, in terms of a confusing approach to their uh, evident dementia. And um, y- you've actually alienated whole parts of your electorate that you really didn't need to go anywhere near. You just without didn't win- need to do any of that.
1: Without it. winning. Because, you know, I, even if we look at it fairly, you know, I suppose, who's charitably, it who's it going to attract? And, you know, the notion, I think, of trying to tax assets. Rather than income and say we've got, you know, people with houses worth a lot of money and there's a lot of young people who can't afford houses, so redistributing the money in some way it's not the world's worst idea. It's not even particularly a right wing idea. But why get into it now? And indeed, you didn't so she had alienated the, the elderly and didn't appeal to the youth no. at all. Which Corbyn had sown up. And why do you think he appeals to, to, to young people? Because on the face of it, he's also a man late in his years who's not particularly trendy what what did he do do you think to to appeal to the youth I think
3: he has a, very, not a young man yourself you can, I, you can I, speak I, to the youth yes it's, it's tricky <laughs> for me isn't it yes I'm a long it's way off very, <laughs> very old it has <laughs> to be said I imagine though it's a, an unfamiliar region for me That the social media that uh, his campaign team handled so well for his uh, leadership election um, I think they continued to use that very smartly I think it's also that when students in particular see, it's not just that they've obviously been offered a, a relief from a substantial amount of debt, um, when they see him uh, offering a more hopeful narrative, uh, a more exciting and invigorating and countercultural narrative, that really goes down well with them. If you uh, are a young person and you still have some sort of fire in you, he is the only politician offering something that isn't uh, politics as usual. Yep.
1: And indeed, pre planned. You know, that's the other thing. It's it's that sort of sterility of traditional politics. This Linton Crosby idea that if you repeat "strong and stable" five thousand four hundred and seventy-two yeah. times, it'll be heard by everyone in the country and they'll buy it. And that sterility really counted again. And now there was a briefing at the weekend that she never liked it. She didn't like strong and stable which is ironic considering that's the one thing that will be slapped about her face for the rest of her political it's career.
3: Sounds as if she didn't like any part of her manifesto or her campaign and oh, yet yes. there she and was a yeah. helpless <laughs> exactly. victim uh, and exactly. she was only the Prime Minister.
2: But I think also he was at ease with it. Mm. He was almost visibly at ease with what he was saying. He's been saying it for a long time. Yeah. He seems to believe it. He's been consistent on it. They were also, the uh, Labour Party, were consistent on the fact that they said you could argue that the social media side was, was run differently and the local part were done differently, but we will run a positive campaign. And they did. They had ideas and they didn't attack individual figures.
1: Yeah, and I think the genius, as you say, the genius about that is the attack dogs of the Tories, which are the, the printed press, are very visible and they're very open to criticism for it. I think the attack dogs of the Labour campaign are a little harder to spot. They are, they are within social media, they're within the hyper-partisan sites, some of which claim, sort of proclaim themselves deliberately to be a left-wing version of the Daily Mail, but they're not seen to be endorsed by the establishment. So he gets the best of both worlds, doesn't he? He gets a bit of an attack doggery, but he can also stand there and say, I'm talking about the things I believe in and I'm not tainted by it.
2: Yes, and, and the Tory campaign seemed to be wholly negative, which, which the sure, Labour campaign needed. wasn't. I mean, it was, it was mostly only negative. I mean, as you say in your piece, that actually this is, this is not fear over hope, this is hope over fear in a way that some of the, some of the recent overturns have been. Exactly, and,
1: and, and although it sounds strange in this context of Corbyn, but you know, Brexit was a hope over fear uh, notion in some ways. Trump was a kind of hope over fear in some ways. It was change. It was about not change, accepting. I, would, yeah. I don't know about hope, status, but change. But I, yeah. I, it doesn't feel right because in some ways it's negative. But I guess my point is it's about m-
3: those campaigns also had a healthy dose of xenophobia attached to it. Yeah, that's the really important Which thing is the wrong thing that Corbin yeah.
1: Corbyn didn't do. Didn't, didn't know, do and
3: never what? would do. And it could have counted against him, but it didn't. So did oh. he
1: win, Bob, in in your view? Did Labour win this election?
3: Um well, obviously not in terms of being able to form a government, but um, as, as people are pointing out. But yes, I think in every other sense, because he not only exceeded, massively exceeded all expectations... But, in effect, he has completely disabled the Tory government. We are going to see possibly the end of austerity. We're going to see a different approach to Brexit. See, I'd, I'd like to come back to that because I, don't, I don't think we will see a different approach to Brexit. It'll be interesting to see how it plays out because they, they seem crippled at the moment. It's yeah. very hard for them to get a Queen's speech going at the moment. Because of um,
2: the races and the goats. It is yeah. hard. The no, goat it is turns out to be a complete lie, doesn't yeah.
3: it? And in terms of the momentum for the next election, the trajectory for Labour is very, very clear. It's up, up, up. Yeah. And you can see what's happening to Tory support They are not going to look good over this period. I can't see them immediately being able to recover from what he's done to them.
1: And actually, if he'd won the election... Some of the problems that Theresa May now will face, would he would have to face, and not necessarily be in a great position, because Brexit is the great problem of the age. And say he'd won a small majority, it would be a problem that he would struggle to deal with as well. This is always the perfect result in that there can be a period in which the Tories seem yet more fallible, and, then, and they, this government can't last five years. So when
3: the government does fall he'll be in a place to take advantage of. I agree with that. I agree with that completely. It's amazing that the party was able to get this far from from where they'd been. It's the biggest jump in the popular vote for a party since Clem Atley. Yeah. yeah, 9%. So, um, it's a really, really good result. But yes, just to fall short, because a slim majority, he wouldn't be able to get anything done. And he's campaigning on a fairly radical uh, prospectus it would be disappointing it would be disappointing it would be constantly besieged and beset so um waiting now for another big push and getting a decent majority that would that would make a difference
1: because the thing about brexit i think is interesting because everyone's now trying to work out what it means for brexit and i spoke to gina miller and she said we're now going to get much more cross-party conversation and therefore brexit will be softer but i think the counter argument to that is both parties such as they talked about brexit which they didn't really want to do very much we're talking about not being in the single market um, not having freedom of movement, both parties didn't want to annoy the UKIP voters who were going to uh, yeah. defect, and that's kind of still where we are. Eighty-three percent of the population voted for two parties who more or less want a Brexit which doesn't have freedom of movement and doesn't have membership of the single market. So that doesn't feel like that's got that softer. So does it? many conclusions uh, from that eighty-three really percent. Because
3: did. how many options did people have in the electorate? the, the fact is, if you're a, yeah. a Remain voter, you quite possibly in that election aren't going to vote on the basis of your passion for Remain. You're going to be voting on a lot of other issues. And so naturally you have to end up voting for a party that's committed to Brexit. But I I don't think it necessarily means that you've ceased to care It's just you didn't care about it as viciously and passionately as the other side. But just
1: from a manifesto the reason why I say about Labour, Labour manifesto is relatively clear on freedom of movement and and, and single market. It was relatively robust on the subject. And very and John MacDonald, when interviewed, was keen to hold a line. Because whether this analysis is right or wrong, I suspect it was right was UKIP was all going to go Tory yeah. because of how soft Corbyn was on immigration. That was the thing we were told. In fact, by being toughish sounding on Brexit but not going into the detail, they were able to say to UKIP Labour-leaning people, you can come back to us with, with safety because your Brexit isn't being compromised. And the
3: and whip on Article uh, 50, that yeah. was, as uh, Luke Akers I think, said recently, in retrospect, that was a strategic masterstroke. Didn't feel like it at the time. No. He got a lot of jit for it, but...
2: I mean, having having said that, you say that you know it's it's good for in terms of party politics, it may be better for the Labour Party um, to not get in and to get in, um, you know, with a bigger majority next time and to leave a kind of weak Tory government negotiating Brexit, but that means you have a weak Tory government oh,
1: negotiating yes. Brexit. That's the problem. It's not good for the country. No, I, mean, no, I, I think the, that uh, in a, in a general think, way, I think that's very. I think this is a. In the Tories talks about the election that everybody loses, because Corbyn has lost technically, although I think the moral victory is unquestionably his. The Tories have lost hugely badly. Oh. The SNP mm. have been really badly damaged. In Scottish independence is Scottish independence is kind of dead as yes. an issue oh, for them. But they couldn't
2: go anywhere but down. Though, yes, they they
1: couldn't, couldn't. But they, they lost a third have. of their they lost a third of their their seats, and, and if they, could have, lost they more. could have lost mm, more. Yeah. Lib Dems did nothing based on this whole Remain yeah. uh, mirage, That's and UKIP a- will no longer
3: exist. The Liberal Democrat failure I think, is the most striking thing for me because a couple of months ago I would have said surely they were going to be the beneficiaries here. From everything we were told about how unelectable Corbyn was but how repulsive to some people and the were. all the Brexit Remainers, was, you'd have thought all the surely, Remainers yes, might have they done. But it didn't happen.
2: But there weren't enough, I don't think there were enough there weren't enough seats where they would have made a difference mm. even even had you know their biggest vote gone out I think people felt that that wouldn't have made enough of a difference
1: and actually people were so frightened of May that a lot of people I know a lot of Labour people who said six months ago I'm never voting for Corbyn yeah. mm. and a month ago said I'm voting for Corbyn yeah. because I want to, yeah. to make a statement here about how I've been taken for granted and that's May's problem which I, she clearly didn't recognise at the time was people were affronted by this campaign and by this manifesto People actually thought, I can't allow you to make... This level of assumption about me and my That's life, right. and they wanted to make a put a, a marker down to say, "Do not treat me like an idiot."
2: Yeah, exactly, because I think that style. Because you talk about it in the piece about the kind of mummy style. It is a very kind of patronising. We'll sort it. We'll do Brexit, but on the domestic things, people were absolutely not fooled. That's which is why the teachers and the nurses. What did Jeremy
1: the, Hardy call her? D- you said to me.
2: Uh, I'm trying to remember it now. No, he said. He said she was very popular because a certain sort of Tory vote. To likes a strong, spanky lady.
1: <laughs> <laughs> and Martin Amish, as I quote in my piece, once said about Philip Larkin's view of Margaret Thatcher, it's toilet training run amuck," And it's that same notion, but that mumsiness, and she's not Thatcher. I mean, that's the, we have to leave it here, but the one thing, Bob, because you, you know, around in the 80s when Thatcher decimated the, 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 the hard left, the, the strong left in this country... Theresa May May is not
3: Thatcher? No, not in any respect, I don't think.
1: And the result is not going to be the same, is it? Uh, No, it seems not. Bob Potts, thank you very much indeed. Thank you. For almost the last 250 years, the Royal Academy has held what it called back in 1768 an annual exhibition of paintings, sculptures and designs open to all artists. It now forms the largest open submission exhibition in the world and this year will hang over 1,200 works by a variety of well-known and unknown artists over a period of eight days. Our art guru Anna Vo went to see it and spoke to sculptor painter Tom Lomax. She was visiting on something called Varnishing Day, a new one on me, and handily enough started by finding out just what the day involved.
4: Well, historically, it's the day when uh, the artists, the academicians, used to come and finish their work. Or they could touch it up, add things to it, just uh, make it sit into the environment. You know, there's that famous um, story of Turner. He came in and saw his painting on the wall and everyone said, no, it's too garish, it's too bright and, everything. and he just mixed up a pile of lamp black on his palette and just rubbed it all over the painting and everyone just stood back and said, my God, what a fantastic painting so it has that kind of mystical sense to it today where people would adjust their work to fit in with everything else around or to give it that lift where they would beat the competition
5: Process
2: like
4: of submitting your submitting work? is uh, submitting is I think there's two things in life are traumatic. One is moving house, which I've never done, and two is submitting to the Royal Academy, which I've done on many occasions and been successful the majority of the times. But there are those when those, those occasions when you you don't get in, and you know you hate everybody for a year till you do get it till the year you do get in. So it it can be very traumatic, because there are stages you have to go through. Well, when I say that, certain artists, um, they get invited, and whoever's uh, coordinating the show uh, that particular year, or there may be an agreement among academicians, and no one's ever... It's one of those secrets, you know, I think. And what they will do is certain artists will bring invite certain other artists to contribute to their rooms. Because as we walk around, you'll see that each room has been, if you like, presented by a different artist or a different academician. And then the coordinators uh, go around and they, you know, discuss it and pull the whole exhibition together. So when you're actually submitting, uh, you go through these three stages. One stage is to put the work in. The second stage is it gets through that and you then are reviewed again. And even then, the work comes into the um, into the gallery, and it can be lying around. And there's this famous um, uh, kind of adage, which is, show, uh, selected but not hung. You know, and that is, and sometimes that can be selected, not hung, right at the last minute. You know, so you feel as though you're in there with a chance, and you don't get in, and that's and the saddest would you, occasion.
5: Would you know that before? varnishing day. Well
4: what's, what's, what's interesting about it is uh, to prolong the pain the, the Academy keeps sending you letters like I got one this year saying still under consideration <laughs> so it is a very much a, you know, right until the last minute you don't really know
5: and, and today, right now, is the first time that you've seen is, your, the work indeed. that you've submitted It is indeed. Tongue.
4: And it was, uh, you know, it, it's quite interesting because when, as soon as you come through the doors, you say, right, OK, I better find my where, where my work is so you can stand your corner, you know, just in case, just check out who's checking it out, that kind of thing. And uh, once you feel secure, because that can also be an upset, you can come in and find your work right at the top, of, next to the roof, you know and the angels a lot of people who can look at it or oh, I just heard someone, I'm at the Dashun level where you know only, only Dashuns and their friends can uh, get a peek I think the other one's called the giraffe level where it's high enough for giraffes
5: and where are you? I'm,
4: I'm at giraffe level should we go would be it? Yeah, <laughs> and as I say, giraffe level those two at the top there, the one on the left is called Whirlwind Moon, and the one on the right is in, called In the Shadow of.
5: I think and you need to explain that um, none of these pictures, none of the work in the show is um, titled or named, it just has a number. A so number by it. In fact, yes. nobody, unless they know that's your work, nobody looking at it at this well, stage at this, at this stage, stage until they've
4: checked it in the until the book the... apparently the books are about to arrive but everything's late this year when we arrive oh look there's a cherry picker uh, <laughs> they're still, there's still and in a sense that's reminiscent of the early varnishing days instead of the artists being here the hangers here and that you know things get moved around and talked about. but yes to go back to that we've heard on three different uh, occasions this morning that the books are on their way and these books are very interesting. It, it, they are just pure, factual books. Numbers, names... And prices. And, and prices. Oh my, <laughs> my God, I forgot about that. <laughs> prices. <laughs> So that's why we're here. That's why we're here. <laughs> exactly. Because everything
5: is, everything is for sale.
4: Everything is for sale. Well, I think most things are for sale. I think some of the visiting artists, they may not be for sale.
5: So, yes, I think you should explain to the listeners what your work involves, because it's 3D
4: printing. It, it, normally it's 3D printing, but these two prints are 2D prints, right. and uh, normally what I would do is I would enter 3D prints. They're objects that are drawn in the computer, then they're sent off to a bureau, and they actually print them in three dimensions. And I've been trying to do a lot of research into how you can put colour into this process. And it's rekindled my love of colour, and that's why these prints are coming out now are, are more colourful in that sense.
5: Are there particular artists that you you are pleased to be in the company of? Oh I,
4: well, a couple of years ago I was in the company of Kiefer. No one could uh, no one could resist that, could they? I was next door, round the corner, but next door. You know, so it was that was a wonderful experience, and especially in that time I was showing 3D prints, and the juxtaposition I thought was very. interesting. Interesting for me, because here was someone who was making paintings that were almost three-dimensional, and here was I, I was making three D sculptures that were very colourful. You know, so that juxtaposition I found quite but interesting. You're
5: you're very dependent upon the sensitivities of the hanging committee. Yes,
4: and that you have you have little control over. You know, you, uh, you know you turn up, and as I say, you come in and stand your corner because you it's make or break at that point. You know, they. I think they've done a particularly good job this year. You know, I mean, I, I'm quite impressed going around the whole shoulders. You know, the space around things, allow things are allowed to breathe. The works are complementary, but discussive. You know, as they, as you look at one piece to another, you can see some kind of conversations going on, and I really enjoy that too. You get a sense of when you're walking around that all these works, they want to be here. You know, they're put in by people, they are selected by people who want this to happen, you know. OK, there are disappointments, but uh, in the main, you know, you feel it's a celebration of what's going on in the country around.
1: Anna Vo and Tom Lomax at the Royal Academy's Summer Exhibition. Anna is in the studio with Lucy and me now. Anna, this is a very, very big exhibition. Does have a sort of central narrative or anything? Is there anything you can sort of compress it down to? Uh,
5: well, I think it reflects... Each year uh, they have a different hanging committee, a different overall coordinator. Each year it will reflect the aims and ambitions of that coordinator as well as the personality of that oh. coordinator. And
1: what is the personality of this one?
5: So uh, this year we have Eileen Cooper... Who is the first ever female keeper, Royal Academy
2: keeper? It sounds like something from Harry Potter.
1: (laughs) I knew. You know what, what, Lucy? I knew I was about to bring a Harry Potter metaphor into this. As you started speaking, I knew Hogwarts was making an an (laughs) ill-deserved entry into our conversation. Don't worry, you can edit it out. No, we'll leave it in. Go on. Of
5: the Royal Academy's schools, and this is a. You know Everything is up for sale in this show. Or ah. not everything, but most of the things are up for sale. It makes a huge amount of money for the Royal Academy's school. So half the money goes to the artists and the other half goes to the schools. So tell us about the personality
1: um, of this keeper.
5: She's worked hard to bring a lot of women into this year's show. OK. And to broaden its reach to include people from other countries, so it's much more international.
2: So they're embracing diversity in they 2017. absolutely well embracing diversity.
5: 249 and
1: years after um, beginning. We go.
5: That is very tangible. Each room is hung by a different artist okay. and my favourite room is hung by Yinka Shonibari, who is London born
1: Lucy but, nodded intelligently, though I know because that.
5: I actually do know who that is <laughs>
1: <laughs> So go on television for those of us not including me who <laughs> don 't know about that artist tell Um us.
5: Uh, And grew up in Nigeria and then came back to art school in London, and he 's known for his um, batik fabrics, and we 're greeted in the courtyard of this year 's show with one of his sculptures which is a large wind sculpture it's actually made out of fiberglass but it looks like it's cloth flying in the in Amazing. the breeze in the wind and his room is it's really full of humanity it's just immediately apparent that the mixture of materials the kind of work that is in there so
1: and who goes to this i'm interested in this is this a, is this a big Money maker for the Academy t- from a sort of admissions as well as selling the paintings or is it selling the artwork, or is it? I mean, it's a popular thing. Do people go it's to It's
5: hugely popular. And it turns out that there are an awful lot of people who want to buy art once a year. And things range in price from £120
2: to many, many hundreds of thousands. Really? Do they, really? I was wondering, because it sounded like, from what Tom Lemack said, it sounds a bit gruelling, the whole process of submitting things.
5: I think it is quite gruelling.
2: And I, it's, it's definitely gruelling for the committee.
5: So they get about 12,000 submissions. And can anyone submit? Yes, you have to pay £25. Oh, right, really? OK. Oh, so they must yeah. get and some
1: shockers. So I
2: could, do I could get submit some, something next year you, if I give them £25.
5: You could. Excellent. And then um, they shortlist about one in 12. Oh, and God. it used to be that everybody brought in their work. You'd see lines, lines no, but now, in. But now it's it's done on the computer. People just send in Some their pictures. images. Well, have
1: you ever um, bought anything from her? No. <laughs> For £120, people who buy... Oh, people
5: I might that... have had £120 once, yeah. No, yeah the yeah. things yeah. I always want are really, really expensive. A, a like crazy Anna's expensive. Got um, expensive taste. Yeah. I mean.
1: <laughs> Do you think it's a different experience when you go to an exhibition where the art is on sale does that feel different in any anywhere I'm interested by that cause most exhibitions you go to it doesn't feel like the art is available and very most often it isn't available is it but this actually is this has, this has a sort of commercial well, purpose sh-
5: yes it has a uh, a shopping aspect to it And
1: do you think people are there sort of sizing stuff up and that would, that would look good yes, in the dining do. room Really? Yeah. That's kind of extreme. is that not kind of Am I, Does that not feel strange, Lucy? Well, I think it's,
2: no. I think it's interesting, and it's interesting what I was wondering how much it was about, like Tom Lemos was saying, how much it's about money, how much it's about oh how beautiful, and I don't know whether I like this, and then how much of it is just kind of about commerce and money, and it probably is hugely about money. Um,
5: and uh, some an insider tells me that <laughs> they do often discuss whether or not they should continue doing the the summer show. And I think as long as it continues to make a lot of
2: money, really. they will continue do it. Because <laughs> presumably yeah. it doesn't
1: have an, a, an arcing narrative in the way that exhibitions often do, where there's, that there's a, some sort of story being told. It's just a series of rooms by a series of disparate artists who are all seeking to, to sell their stuff. So it's kind of, I mean, it's kind of sort of an attic sort of feel to it, that it's, that it's sort of lots of different disparate things.
5: More or less, yes. I think it can't really take the temperature of, of what's happening in contemporary art. And it is less of, an, of a showcase for amateur artists than it used to be. But I think that room by room, they want, uh, they want some coherence and they want some narrative to emerge. So there'll be one room testing the relationship between figuration and abstraction. Then there's um, Baris' room, which is very clearly political, like I say, began to to look around, thinking, "Well, this is the political room. Yeah. This is the ugly room. This is the sex room. This is the beautiful room. What this was the is sex the invi- room? invisible you room." What was the sex room? <laughs> Gilbert and George, oh. and
1: <laughs> and then Jones. our interest waned in slightly. you that there was a, there was a palpable diffusion of tension in the room then when that happened. Well, and I'm so glad you went around. And Tom Lomax seems like a he was he was a, he was a charming companion to go around with.
5: Tom was a very charming companion. Yes, and if I could buy two works those would be the first two that i would buy
1: well there we go recommendation as well anna thank you so much indeed Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade.
2: Something we'll be hearing a lot about other than politics over the next few weeks, and more enjoyably, is the Summer of Love, which is now 50 years old. Sergeant Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band is often credited with being the high point or the essence of 1967, and looking back at it is an odd exercise since it's such a nostalgic thing itself. The opening lines are, it was 20 years ago today. Penny Lane and Strawberry Fields, written as part of the album but released as singles, are specifically about Paul and John's childhood, and there's a wash of psychedelic victoriana on mr kite and lucy in the sky with diamonds which was picked up more or less successfully by lots of other bands and dj taylor has written for us about the summer of love and he asks what it was so i'm going to ask him the same thing Good uh, david what was it
6: well in some ways i have to say i wish i knew i was six when the summer of love was taking place and um, i think one of the points that um, that first point that ought to be made about is how exclusive it was to particular localities. I mean, I don't think the Summer of Love happened in Norwich, where I was a small child. We never saw... I can remember the first miniskirt that arrived in Norwich, and people were openly deriding it, you know. All these people go, what's that woman? What's that girl showing her legs for? You know, I can remember seeing one at the bus stop when I was about six, and people were going, ah, what is... But to answer your um, specific inquiry, um, I suppose you'd have to say that it was a kind of... Um, a countercultural movement that took place on the west coast of America, specifically in San Francisco, California. It's sort of certain, as I say, very localized quadrants in in England, particularly in um, you know, swinging London, in inverted commas, uh, the Kings Road, and sort of music festivals and that sort of thing. That brought together pop music, obviously, mind-expanding drugs, fashion, literature to a certain extent all sort of welded together and very, very quickly commercialized to the point where uh, it's the old, old one. It's the old phrase from that um, Tom Gunn poem about Elvis Presley, the revolt into style. So that uh, uh, before, almost before you knew where you were, it had been commercialized, uh, made a part of business, and, and moved so far away from its original moor- moorings that the people who'd started it were aghast and then left it behind. Was th-
1: you did mention sex there.
6: Oh, yeah. I should have mentioned sex. Yes, yeah. yes. do forget Which, sex. Sex, lots of yeah. Well, again, I mean, I'm, I'm, this is all. Is that
1: real?
0: Yeah.
6: You're right, but it's all very problematic, actually, because um, um, I always my own. What do I know? I was six at the time, but certainly, if you watch the you know the doc, and there's a very interesting documentary series uh, going at the moment on BBC Four about um, you know hippies and the summer of love and last week's episode you know the clip for the next episode ended with a woman says you know the way in which women were exploited in those hippie communes um, on the west coast of America has not received as much publicity as it should. Yeah, I think I think
2: that's a it's a really overlooked element of it because everyone just kind of says oh it was all about free love freedom, but
6: it was it was the freedom from men to exploit women as, yes, far as I can yeah. see. Yes,
2: because actually the the the, the kind of the, the kind of dirty work of feminism, if you like, didn't really get going until a bit later, I think.
1: So is this the age of the pill first coming out and so people could have more free sex, but it didn't necessarily mean that the power structures around sex had changed at all?
6: It didn't, and it also meant that um, the, the, the sort of the bandwagon... Jumping was was it was almost expressly calculated to you know sort of inflame the desires of freeloaders. I you know and there's a I think I quote in the piece. There's a there's an immensely caustic Frank Zappa song called Flower Punk, uh, released in early 1968. So it's you know one of the first kind of comments on the experience of the previous time, and it just sort of derides these um, these people who went off to you know who went off to San Francisco trying to sort of start. The, I think one of the lyrics goes sort of hey, punk, where are you going with that hair upon your head? I'm going to get some action at the disco and then I'm going home to bed. You know, so it was all... Well, sort of hang domestic- on a second,
1: David. We've actually got a clip of that. We oh, can we, we can play that we now. Do, we,
2: we've actually um, put it together with, because we're talking about the, the, the other strand, um, we've, mm. we've got a little clip of um, Scott McKenzie's San Francisco, Thanks, which you we'll know, which, which, which is yes. the kind of friendly chart-topping oh, version, the tourist version, and then the Frank Zappa version, right. which is rather different.
6: Cut out to Frisco to join a psychedelic.
1: I prefer Zappa's much, zap much better, isn't
6: it? It's, it's much it? groovier. <laughs> <laughs> much yeah. And you see, the cover of We're Only in, it the Mo- Only in It For The Money was actually a pastiche of Pepper.
2: Yeah, it was. It's it very was. funny. Well, they're all dressed as kind of little girls in satin dresses, aren't they? And they look bonkers. They look, they really, look bonkers, yeah. yeah. Yes. Yep. Well, it's should great. we talk about
1: Sergeant Pepper? Because I, I don't want to admit this to you, David, but I'm a bit of a Beatles agnostic. I, oh, my God. I, I know. No, you, you, well,
6: you see, you're too young. You're
1: too young. Lucy's not that old, and she, I'm sure she likes the Beatles as well. But, but, um, so tell me. About Sergeant Pepper, because I'm interested in this, because it, it is one of the great cultural moments, I would, isn't
6: it? I would, I would argue, taking I suppose taking my cue from the great, the greatest ever Beatles scholar, the late Ian MacDonald, whose book "Revolution in the Head: The Beatles Records in the 60s is the defining text, I think, relating to that period. Um, I would argue that it's not actually the Beatles' best album musically. The best mm-hmm. album is Revolver, yeah. the year before, but. Pepper is the greater, had the greater cultural impact.
1: And why um, is that?
6: Well, because it, um, it kind of... The Beatles were always ahead of the game. You know, the, we remember the 1960s, the, the music industry was changing at such a rate of knots that you, 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 nobody could really be in control of it. But the Beatles managed to kind of stay in the vanguard for several years, um, almost kind of making up the rules as they went along. Um, and I suppose what it did was it kind of... Crystallised everything that ha- oh, this is going to sound pretentious. It kind of crystallised everything that happened in pop music up until then, and then kind of hinted at what was going to happen afterwards. So, although it's determinedly, as you, as you said previously, it's determinedly n- nostalgic, if not elegiac, it's looking back all the time. But it was kind of creating the conditions which, in which all the music that followed was, you know, was, was going to exist in.
2: I think, um, yeah, in technical terms, mm. it, they just the way they recorded it and the techniques they used basically everybody uh, uh, unless they're being kind of willfully retro has recorded like that
6: that's right I mean they though interestingly um, at the time in 67 the American American producers were so slightly sniffy about the the equipment they were using in Abbey Road. You know, oh, it's much more sophisticated in in L.A. and New York. Oh, you know, why don't the Beatles record in America and get a better... But the fact was that George Martin, who produced them, and and, and Jeff Emmerich, his engineer, were just so brilliant and so extraordinary at what they were doing with the tape loops and the recordings that immediately all the American producers rushed to kind of pick up their techniques and their innovations. And so although perhaps the studios were not quite as state as the arts, the sort of thing the Beach Boys were using... Uh, on the west coast of america the, the the sheer innovativeness of what what martin and co were doing was enough to carry them that much further on
2: also the 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 crucial thing about george martin and, and and the engineers was that they did have they had a kind of open mind and they're ready to put the tapes in backwards and cut them up and throw them around but also george martin was an extraordinary arranger and composer and musician so he had the whole kind of classical Education at his fingertips, so well, he uh, could yeah. score something for string quartet oh, could, or orchestra, and he, he play,
6: and he could play them himself. Yeah. he could uh, yeah. quite, uh, quite so they, sort of sit down and, and be the fifth people They kind and of I had all the was,
2: bases covered, I think. He yeah. was
6: instrumental in that 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 paradigm shift, I suppose, yeah. in '65 to '67 of bands just not being recorded but produced. Yes, and exactly. Course, as, we all, as we all know, like, I mean, you could argue if you want, to, and I, I'd be tempted to argue this that. Like Ulysses in literature, Sergeant Pepper was the great monster that spawned no progeny because all the progressive rock that then... Yes, I was, was, was swept going in to say that, yeah. To my, from my this perspective concept it album. dreadful <laughs> yes. you know well, I like a bit, of, pro- a I, I like a bit of progressive for. rock okay, <laughs> yeah, we've got a proggy here have we yeah, my, no, no.
1: When I was don't a, worry
2: he's outnumbered when I was, go
1: there. when I was a kid uh, on a Sunday morning I used to uh, do homework and my dad used to, to sit in the dining room with me and he did his work and I did my homework and we used to listen to uh, deep purple no,
6: no, that's not progressive rock.
1: And there, yeah, but also, no, no, no. but also Genesis and oh, yes, uh, yeah, that definitely. Yeah, is. yeah, yeah so, so the definitely. whole range of sort of rock of the well, sort of the worst.
6: The very, my, I would argue, that the very worst beneficiaries of all this with Pink Floyd
2: I agree I wholeheartedly agree I so mean, go on let's talk about
1: this, because you went to see the... the Pink Floyd exhibition
6: well I haven't seen it you read the book I read it's the book, book. Yep. I've read the enormous book um and it's very it is it's it's fascinating because the the, the the point the case there's some wonderful essays and especially by Joe Boyd who was who produced the Floyd's first single and was a very very important figure musically in 67 68 I mean he was the great uh, impresario who discovered Nick Drake for example and and, and did his three albums before and um, before he died in the early 70s and the the point that boyd makes is that if we're talking about being hip with the kids and the actual underground revolution that was going on in 1967 that places like ufo uh, and some of the psychedelic clubs, then Pink Floyd were far closer to what was actually happening yeah. you know, down in Rebel Land mm. than the Beatles. Uh, and in fact, they were recording their first album, Piper at the Gates of Dawn, at exactly the same time as the Beatles were at work at Pepper in the studio next door at, at Abbey Road. And it, it suggested there was a certain amount of cross-fertilization, you know, about the ubiquitous Mellotron that that starts hitting English pop in 67, mm. the, the Strawberry Fields noise, um, and there, there are uh, it's very interesting that after they'd finished um, Sergeant Pepper, the Beatles, um, nobody's ever heard it. I think about what two, two people in the world have heard it, apart from the Beatles, that they they, they they spent a whole day recording this kind of experimental jam that is supposed to have been loosely influenced by what Pink Floyd were doing in the next studio. And,
1: uh, and you regard then the sort of corporatization, if that's a word, of Pink Floyd, is what then followed. I listen to something like Dark Side of the Moon, which I think is a great album, although I don't think you like it.
6: No, I uh, don't. No, it was the one, when I was a boy at school, it was the one that all the um, it was the one that people kind of talked about reverentially in the oh, playground
1: Lucy's face is like she's sucking <laughs> a lemon hair. in
6: 1975 you either like Pink Floyd or you like Dr. Feelgood, and I like Dr. Feelgood they were sharp and fast and loud and it was about something, whereas Floyd just seemed to me this terrible sort of scratchy noodling it's an old, old wound. Just no, I, I, Reno, this, yeah. is,
1: this is broadly a literary podcast. I don't want to get into the weeds on this. <laughs> no, no, but no, you know, no. the, the guitar solo in Comfortably Numb is mm. an extraordinary thing. When you see Dave Gilmore play Guitar live, he's very, very good at guitar. and It's he's a kind very, of beautiful, clean guitar solo. You could solo. be very,
2: very good at guitar and not be at all musical. Well, that's the heart those, of progressive those, rock. Well, yes, that's why that's I don't I, like, like it. Those,
6: <laughs> all those songs need to be sharper and, no, and d- oh, God. Be- just
1: finally, on, on, on the similar, love the, the Beatles themselves... Did they disown it, do you think, or did they benefit from it? Because there's a story you tell, which I've seen told also mm. elsewhere, of George Harrison sort of strolling around the place in San he Francisco. Went to
6: hate. He went to Hate Ashbury and found it was just a kind of needle run and full mm. of terrible people all behaving badly.
1: And what did he think it was going to be? What was the ideal that had been compromised in his? In, uh, to him, would it have been?
6: I think, I mean, he. Uh, I, most people in, in Britain had just sort of seen the newsreels and they thought it was all beautiful people dancing in meadows and pretty girls with flowers in their hair sort of... Rather than just you know the heavy side of drugs took over so quickly that that, that the whole thing simply became swallowed. squalid, and
2: I wonder um, also whether George just sort of underestimated Beatlemania a bit because. He was still one of the most famous people in the world, and I think he expected to be able to kind of float about, and everyone would just go, "Hey, man," and it would all be cool. I, I think, but I he was a Beatles, so they I all kind they, of crowded round him, and it um,
6: was—it was very rare that the Beatles actually went and sort of greeted. them, yeah. rather like Theresa May, actually. You know, they, they were very rarely put in front <laughs> Don't of all people. make that comparison. People, uh, you know, and, and and I think he was just sort of rather <laughs> surprised. He—he sort of—I he, think, he, as you say, he thought he could kind of float troubadour-like through the throng, um, you know. They, they were not cool about it, I think. But they weren't cool about it. And they offered him some really nasty drugs that he didn't terribly want to sample. Uh, and he had to be kind of spirited away by Derek Taylor, the Beatles publicist, who was who was riding shotgun um, well, at the time.
1: So, so on that, I think on that bombshell... David, where you intemperately have just compared Theresa May to the, the Beatles Have uh, yeah, I? It, it takes us back to the beginning of this podcast very handily. Uh, so David, thank you so much for joining us and for thank doing you. this piece. Thank you. It was Yeah, fun. Yeah, great fun. It's a, it's a very fun piece indeed. That's all we have time for this week, Lucy. And I haven't even mentioned the fact that you, of course, have recorded your indie pop in Abbey Road.
2: Oh, well, we did actually, but we were so excited at being in Abbey Road that we really, really mucked about. And when we listened to what we'd recorded at the end of a week or however long it was, everybody agreed that it was so bad. It was we, unusable. We, did, we couldn't use it. We had, to, we had to scrap it and go off to a small studio where we would concentrate.
1: And what were you doing messing around? What were you just sort of... We
2: just were so excited. We were just going about on the chairs. We were, it's really, really big and it's got like whizzy chairs and we were going around and pretending to be the Beatles. I mean, it wasn't, you know. <laughs> wasn't, we were just totally overexcited by the whole thing.
1: But wow, experience worth having.
2: Absolutely, yeah. yeah. It was, really, it was really wonderful to be there. We just kept pretending to be the ghost of the Beatles and not singing properly and things like that. Not very grown-up behaviour.
1: And you never got a recording out of it? Not that one, No, me. no. So your pop stardom has been useful there. <laughs> I if, can't if agree th- with any of that statement, as yeah. usual. OK, fine. Uh, our thanks go to Anna Vo, to DJ Taylor and to Robert Potts. Of course, to you, Lucy Dallas, who will also be back next week alongside Thea. So hooray for that. Do go to the-tearless.co.uk to see this week's edition of the paper, which also has a big piece on the canonization of Virginia Woolf and three pieces on the wonder that is George Eliot. Do tweet us at this podcast at FBFM underscore podcast with your comments and thoughts. Please do, reviewers on iTunes. I'll keep mentioning it until you do. Next week, it is the almost but not quite legendary Summer Books issue of the TLS. We'll gather here in this place and analyze our contributors' suggestions as to what they will be taking with them on holiday keeping an alert eye for the log rolling or the ostentatious. And we're going to dazzle you with our own recommendations as well. Lucy will be here. Toby Lishtig will be here, our fiction editor. And Fromagier Lennaduzzi shall also return. Until then, from Lucy and from me, goodbye.